Hello, and welcome to Wavemakers, the podcast where we get to know the ocean and water tech and the people behind these blue technologies that are destined to become climate solutions. I'm Tamara Khan, your guide through this splish-splash world of blue tech here on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Well, it's January, so Happy New Year, everyone. And while December was a time to reflect, this is a good time to look ahead and try to line up our thoughts and goals for this next trip around the sun aboard our planet ocean, uh, I mean Earth. Right now, I'm making my way off of an all-too-brief maternity leave, and I'm lining up my guests for this year on Wavemakers, and I'm excited for what I have in store for you so far. But as much as I enjoy sharing with you the innovative things happening in the industry, I know it's just as important to meet the impressive people and learn about the amazing tech they're launching, as it is important to discuss why any of this matters. For this, I have recruited a dear friend and incredible dot connector, Catherine Stover, or she's known to me and many others, KC. That's KC as in Sunshine Band, not At The Bat. <laughs> KC has a broad background ranging from international relations to climate and policy, and so she continues to blow my mind with her dynamic capabilities and continual efforts to learn and expand her mind in this world. I met Casey at graduate school where the two of us became, well, we came from opposite backgrounds, really. She was an expert in policy and business, and I had this high-tech scientific background. And we both found our way to this program at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography with the goal of filling the gaps in our knowledge. I think that our complementary goals helped us form quite the bond. And now we're actually both new moms, so the bond continues to grow. We can basically shoot the shit anytime when it comes to marine topics and babies. So why not record it? <laughs> Before I get into talking to Casey, though, I wanted to do a quick check-in with a past guest. It's been exactly a year since we've heard from Dr. Yi Chow, the founder of SeaTrek. And I thought it would be fun to check in and learn what's the latest with his company as far as projects, funding, partners, and more. In last January's episode, Yi and I talked about the exciting world of ocean exploration and how the bottleneck is basically powering these robots that can help us collect enough data to really understand our world's oceans. Here's Yi and I discussing how it's going with his fight against polluting the ocean with lithium batteries and extra robots that die in the middle of nowhere. Hi, Yi. It's great to speak to you again. How are you? Good. How are you? Doing great. Thank you. Been a busy year for me, and I'm hearing it's been a busy one for you You and SeaTrek, too. Um, where are you? Yeah, it's a lot of things happening in San Diego. And since uh, since we talked last a year ago, um, a couple months later, we signed a MOU with the international community called the Sea by 2030. So the goal of the Sea by 2030 is to mobilize the international community to uh, map the 80% gap of the seafloor by 2030. Um, in our podcast, we talk about uh, how much we know more about the surface of the moon and surface of Mars even than our own planet and our seabed. And this this program is to uh, uh, mobilize every effort possibly can to fill that big gap. And then uh, it's going to be exciting decade and 
um, signing MOU we see by 2030 is the first step uh, towards that uh, ambitious goal. Absolutely. I think we talked last time also a little bit about the challenges of that, of meeting that goal and how you can't have a zillion ships that are very expensive out on the water to collect data. So we have to come up with a, a better approach. Yeah, our instrument is uh, getting ready for ocean test probably in the spring season. Um, we work with the company East Coast Build the Echo Sounder, the sonars, and that's shipped to Germany for uh, completion, uh, putting the final electronic system uh, in the system. Once it's get back, going to be introduced, integrated on the robots, and we're going to test out our coast of San Diego first, and everything goes well. We go to Hawaii and try to do some validation experiment where the, the seabed near Hawaii is, is well mapped, so we're going to test this instrument. And if everything go as planned, validate our instruments, we're going to launch this to launch to the rest of the ocean. Fantastic. I know you've done some testing in Hawaii before, so learned lots of lessons over over there about the currents and everything going on. I hope it, it goes very well with your next round of testing with all those lessons learned. Yeah, thank you. It's not only the a good for coffee off the coast of Kona, it's a perfect spot for testing deep sea instruments. And you, you travel a few miles, it's thousands of meters deep. So it's a remarkable place. <laughs> That's too cool. Not just a pretty face, Hawaii, huh? Great, great testing ground. <laughs> Wonderful. And um, let's, your work with Seabed 2030, has it led you to any other partners? I think you mentioned um, about with the sonar, you have, you've had help in the manufacturing of it? Yeah, we also expand our potential use cases, maybe a market sectors. Uh, we, we, we started a new project with Naval Postgraduate School and tried to integrate a passive acoustic hydrophones onto our uh, profiling floats. So that's really opened the door for uh, scalable technology to detect sound in the ocean. As you know, uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, noise in the ocean, sound noise. Um, we know very little about the whales, the population, the migration, how they interact with uh, different industries and from traditional shipping, all the renewable wind farms. And I was in Mississippi last week and then discovered this, this endangered whales. And then now a fishery scientist told me that there's only 35 left. So there was a dead whale on the beach of Mississippi uh, you know, very rare events in the last 50 years. So so we really want to get this hydrophone uh, profiler in the ocean, demonstrate the technology, deploying them to the right place so we can detect uh, whale population and try to help us to understand their behavior and hopefully protect them and then work with the industry partners to uh, optimize the operation. That's brilliant. You're definitely adding a lot more uses for for the same technology, like multitasking and, and all. I, I wonder, is there anything that sort of inspired you or, or where did you sort of get the spark to do this kind of extra or, you know, where did you learn that these whales and the sounds of the ocean were important to, to record? As an oceanographer, I, anything below the surface is uh, intrigued me. So 
if if we don't know, uh, don't understand the deep sea, kind of bothers me. So that can be a a simple temperature distribution to improve the hurricane prediction, the missing seabed mapping, which is really uh, uh, you know troubles me. We 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 only map twenty percent, and then you know nobody drive a car with the map only twenty percent route mapped on the, on the chart. And then all the all the missing information about sound in the ocean from natural uh, sound sources, all the man-made uh, sound sources, and they interfere with the natural uh, marine mammals. So those are the really things that we hope to bring this platform into a commercial stage, and then translate from their academic research to commercial products, so we can scale. And then really observe the ocean, monitor the ocean in a three-dimensional manner, so we can uh, contribute to the entire blue economy. You know that you're you just demonstrated one of my favorite reasons to talk to you. One, you're one of those founders that you came up with this technology because you really care and find it interesting and want to know more. So it's it was kind of like I want to know. So I need this technology. It just so happens that it'll help others as well. <laughs> yeah, the information that, you know, on land is so powerful. You know, we have everything at our fingertip. We have every, everyone have a smartphone. They can access pretty much any information, giving the data from satellites, from drones, from Google cars and different sensors in the land, in the, in the, in the, in the field. But we don't really have those in the ocean. You open your phone, you try to dial in the, the ocean below the surface. Majority of the places, we don't know much. So that's really my goal is to uh, provide those information, provide those data so it can help people, managers, and then customers to make better decisions. Sure. As you mentioned, there's a lot of things um, getting put into the ocean at the moment and a lot of useful to everyone technology, whether it's wind energy or fiber optic cables under the ocean. So these things are important for everyone, really. We just don't realize it in our everyday lives. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I hope SeaTrack will make a difference by uh, providing this energy harvesting technology to power robots and the sensors and in a sustainable way. You know, we want to protect the ocean. We want to observe the ocean and then provide the data. Eventually, uh, people rely on data to make decisions and, you know, uh, could be a mitigation to um, uh, how to uh, plan the um, respond to a hurricane is coming and what category, what strength hurricane is. Um, it could be understanding whales and then so we can work uh, better with the uh, uh, with the marine maritime industry to optimize the economy, and um, and they really provide the map of the ocean. That's really such a fundamental information. We should have that by 2030. That's why we think Sea by 2030 have a really grand challenge goals, and then we hope to be part of that and take the entire village to work on that ambitious goal. And from a big company and small company, new innovation academics, nonprofit, NGOs, everybody. I think think fantastic. And you emphasize another point that I like to bring up here on Wavemakers is that the partnerships are very important. And you, you mentioned it takes a village. So Yeah, yeah, we are very happy. Another thing we we joined uh, this new program. It's a first cohort 
in the called the Gulf Blue Navigator, and uh, basically Gulfport, uh, Mississippi. We're very happy to be one of the six companies, the first group of companies uh, traveling to Gulf Gulfport, Mississippi, try to really learn about the problem challenges on the Gulf Coast, and hopefully. We're bringing our technology to the Gulf, and we already deployed two of our devices in the Gulf of Mexico last year before the hurricane season. Get really exciting data, older magnitude, more data than what we can do in the past. So really looking at this program is a launching pad for our new product this year to scale up our production, manufacturing, and then really scale up to the Gulf and then eventually to the global ocean. That's fantastic. I know that they are building something quite impressive over it's Gulf Blue. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Gulf Blue is the program. This is a incubator for the Gulf Blue Navigator. It's a startup program to connect uh, six companies and four U.S. companies, two international companies to the Gulf and then connect the local stakeholders, customers and use cases and sponsors. And you talk about partners. So I've been visiting Gulfport three times already since last summer, really learned a lot about this new species of the whales, rhesus whale only observing the Gulf. Last week, I was told there's only 35 left. And then on the Wikipedia page is 50 to 60. I told them, you told us it's 60, but they said 35. So time is running out. We need to really monitor the ocean, have a better data to to uh, provide the decision makers to make the right decision. Fantastic. Yeah, it's great to hear from you, Yi, and hear that you're still at it trying to get that data and then turn it into information that's useful on a lot of different cases. Yeah, keep turning stones. Turn Every stone turn. Wonderful. Well, I hope that we can check in with you again in a year or maybe less and, and hear the success that's happening. So... Keep it up. Thank you very much for visiting. Looking forward to it. And now, on to our next guest for this month's show. Casey, welcome. Very excited to have you on the show. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. It's great. I'm really happy you were able to, to join me. I know things are a little bit hectic with little ones around. So, I think... Where we'll start is where I start every episode, and that's learning a little bit about you. And I, I didn't want to overshare about you. I want you to do that. So tell me where, tell our audience rather, because I know a lot about you. This time, I'm very familiar with my guest. Where, where do you come from? Why are you here? And what are you doing? Hi. Um, so I am originally from New England, and I like to think that I kind of never grew out of being the kid who wanted to play uh, in the tide pools all day, every day. Um, what is still a driving force for me is that absolute wonder for the natural world and especially the ocean. So um, I did my undergraduate degree uh, in international relations. Um, and with the focus on learning more about, especially parts of the world that um, have different development um, levels and also just different cultures, uh, that was really important to me. Uh, we lived abroad for a few years growing up and that really kind of shaped my perspective on basically that how much I don't know and to approach the world with curiosity. Um, 
And I worked in ocean conservation after that at the New England Aquarium, which is an amazing spot to be. When you can take your coffee break with the cuttlefish, you know you are definitely doing something right. Um, yeah, no, it, it's a perk that I feel like every job should have. Um, and then I went to business school because I kept running into small nonprofits through some of my grant work that just didn't have the um, capacity to build partnerships or develop lasting funding streams. So the operational side of them was actually con constricting their ability to um, make conservation impacts because they might have funding interruptions or not be able to maintain steady staffing. Um, <clears throat> from there, I worked with an urban agriculture startup um, to get kind of more of the understanding of the startup world and kind of what it means to go through funding cycles and how you build something from, you know, ideation to actually being a product that people can buy. Um, and um, I found myself really wanting to get back into the world of conservation. So I moved down to DC and um, started working on conservation policy which is really a huge eye-opener for me, just understanding, especially at the national level, how small tweaks in how things are done can have just huge impacts um, and how the framework in which we look at a large problem um, can really determine what types of solutions actually come up and are able to be seen. Um, Next step was going back to school because everything I was working on was touched by climate change. And I wanted, as you referred to earlier, I wanted to fill that gap in my knowledge. Um, so we met in sunny San Diego, which, God, it's just like, it's like ocean candy land down there. It's just all the cool tech. Just, it's really these amazing people doing incredible things. Um, and I've, was focusing on blue carbon and kind of the partnership and operational side of how do we get um, kelp to be looked at and seaweeds to be looked at as a mechanism for carbon sequestration. Um, so, and since then I have worked in that space. Um, I've recently taken some time off to be with my daughter and I'm working on um, climate adaptation mapping and kind of mapping out the climate impacts in my local community. So that is where I am now. Ooh. So Casey, I, I mean, you've just given me so much fodder. I will, I didn't mention that we haven't, while I know you well, we haven't really planned out this conversation because that's exactly what I wanted to happen. You, you speaking about all those things, I want to come back to the funding and maybe talk a little bit of absolutely about the seaweed and maybe even for starters you, where you just left off mentioning how you're working locally and having an impact sort of right in your own backyard. <laughs> um, yeah. If you'd want to talk about like you're in DC now or you're in Maryland now. I'm in Maryland just outside of DC. I'm about 15 minutes outside the district. Um, and I am living in a part of the country that is experiencing more intense rain events. And we have the you know hotter heat in the summer, but where a lot of the infrastructure kind of strain is currently is in flooding. 
and managing kind of hard surfaces and kind of how these communities will adapt. That's kind of what the local in my actual like backyard down the street for me is. And I think planning for that and planning, Maryland has been pretty progressive on all these things. Um, So what I'm doing is helping to kind of map out some of these impacts, uh, literally with mapping software. Um, Because again, the more you know, the more you can plan. And I think a theme that comes back with startups, with climate change, and with a lot of these solutions is there's so much uncertainty in the future in the sense of like, we don't know exactly how everything's going to play out, but the science is just getting better and better and better. So we have a better idea. And so the more we can engage now and plan and divert and put funding towards essentially investing in resilience, um, the better off we're going to be. For sure. Thank you for jumping straight into where I want to kind of go explaining how there's this tech and there's the science and there's the policy and then there's the innovators and how they're all playing together or need to play together better um, to really scale up these solutions and make things possible. Uh, I think you talk a lot about this geographical lens that you're taking with with Hyphy Group. Is that right? That's the name of your company? That is. That is the name of my company. Just making sure I said it right. but Yes. And Hyphy is, um, they are, this is going to get totally nerdy, but mm-hmm. you know. We like that here. Bring, it's the thing that brings me joy, uh, is that basically it is the mycelium which again, some mycologist is going to totally call me out on my ignorance here. Um, they, it's basically there, they have found that there are essentially neural networks in forests and use trees, use, um, essentially nest networks of fungi to, um, move nutrients, um, between them. And it is the idea of this connective fiber between within an ecosystem and that is the piece of the puzzle because I have been a kind of a connector. I worked in all these different fields. I'm really interested in the places between. So how does policy talk to business? How does business talk to biology? Because ultimately the world is getting you know, increasingly connected, but also just looking at it from an ecosystem approach and context of climate change one thing does impact another. So being able to kind of go between silos is really important. For sure. I've never asked you to explain that to me before, that the name. And it sounds completely appropriate given you're looking at this intersection of all these things. And I, maybe you could kind of tell us more. I Really, I'm having a lot of guests come on this year that are going to be um, – from companies doing seaweed, as you mentioned, like sequestering tech, and there'll be um, underwater robots helping with fish farming, agriculture. Um, I've also got some energy companies, things like wave power. And uh, beyond that, there's just some neat ideas with maybe mangrove cultivating and how, how those can become part of financial institution. Anyway, we'll get into that, but there's a lot of different areas and 
I really want to you tap into your knowledge on why that matters and why that's important. So how do policy and innovators and or policy and business talk to each other? And then maybe in a little while we can get into the funding issues because every every startup founder I talk to, that's where they go. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, yeah, it's basically they have to sustain themselves. So I think it's it's having policies, you know, at the federal level where you're dedicating dedicating funding. It is having policies where. It creates a culture of innovation. And what I mean by that is the allowance for failure, because not all of these new climate solutions are going to work, but we are going to learn from all of them. And even if it's, you know, oh, that really didn't work. Let's try something different. You've closed off a potential, you know, some of the biggest discoveries in the world have been failures. So I think in DC, it's a hard conversation to have to bring that innovation mentality of, okay, you know, fail often, fail frequently so that you learn into a slower moving kind of federal infrastructure where, you know, funding isn't guaranteed. You have to justify kind of your budget for every year. So having those conversations where and setting up kind of dedicated funds like the Department of Energy has been really amazing um, doing this, uh, where you bring together businesses, you bring together innovators, and you have a, a dedicated amount of funding that for people to just learn with and to get these companies off the ground when it's a totally wacky idea. That's so funny. So, sorry to interrupt you. I just have to tell you that it's interesting that you bring up the, the DOE funding because I'm doing some work with Seaworthy Collective right now. And we've just gotten some of that DOE funding towards exactly what you're talking about. They have a program where they, uh, I believe it's design it, move it, prove it is the three stages of this funding. And they really want you to present how you're going to help, you know, scale these innovators up. So first we had to submit about designing our program. And now we're in the stage where we're going to prove, sorry, we're going to move it. We're going to move it forward before we can prove it. <laughs> no, and I think it'd be, and it's a really, it's a really cool to see the understanding of kind of the innovation, um, how that's starting to become much more commonplace in government. Um, that's nice to hear. And I think, yeah, no, it's still slow moving, but there's like DOE has been a real mover on this. I mean, um, Department of Defense on certain aspects. I mean, they have a whole DARPA wing. Um, but I think that's where a policy lens of like kind of that growth mindset and kind of baking it in. Um, I think the other place where policy is really important, and if you go back to intersectionality, is yes, these are new technologies, but you kind of have to visualize their full life cycle and what the communities that they may impact. Um, and making sure that you get everybody in the room to talk about it. So that, you know, depending on 
what specific technologies you're talking about, but like climate impacts are not going to fall equally on every community within the United States. So it's really important to be talking to people on the ground and traditionally underrepresented communities so that you're not having unintended consequences and so that you're also baking in kind of a diverse perspective into how you're going about things from the beginning. And policy specifically stipulating that um, is really critical for kind of guiding the ship that way. So that's another way that kind of a smaller tweak or kind of putting something standardized at the federal level can really have national impacts. I feel like um, there must be some challenges that come about because of that. Like having everyone in the room is certainly important, but how do you get so many diverse opinions to kind of come together and and go forward? Um, so I think it's a challenge. And a lot of times these things have to happen in parallel. So um, one group that's doing amazing work with this is Ocean Visions. They are working to essentially create roadmaps around a lot of these big blue carbon and ocean climate challenges. And they're getting different community representatives are getting funders or getting government representatives or getting scientists in the room so that a lot of these kind of more complex discussions that aren't necessarily very fast can kind of be ongoing as the tech is being tested. So sometimes like a new breakthrough will get ahead of the policy or the funders, but trying to get it so that there's some sort of a consensus in terms of a roadmap, at least if just, okay, we're going to try this. And these are the potential pitfalls. Um, it's, it, you know, this is, this is climate change. This is the largest challenge, you know, any of us have ever faced. Um, so doing, you know, of course you got to do it all at once, but I think kind of doing them in parallel is, seems to be a, an effective way to kind of move these, both the conversations forward and give the tech room to do the, the necessary prototyping and testing and failures and successes. Sure. You, you bring up a good point there because it, it's sort of timing is everything for a startup as well. If they're uh, kind of ahead of their time, they might be a perfectly apt solution that's just not able to succeed because they don't have the right whether it's policies or funding or support, community backing, what what have you. So you have to kind of hit it right, but maybe enable all of those things to happen at the same time as well. I was going to say seaweed's a perfect example of that. It's trying to find, because the science on understanding kind of the mechanisms and the timing for sequestration is kind of being developed along with the tech for growing it at scale. So it's just, it's fascinating watching. There's so much potential there, but they're still, you know, they're still coming to consensus on, you know, how long is this carbon actually sequestered? How, and the reason that they need that certainty is in order to essentially sell that as a carbon credit or put it into any sort of a, um, financial market, you need to be able to declare with certainty that we've got this quantity that's essentially pulled out of the atmosphere for X amount of time. So it's, it's fascinating. Right. Well, that's, you bring 
you bring up a, the, the seaweed, I mean, I can't believe how many seaweed companies are popping up right now. And I've had a friend of mine who's got nothing to do with ocean say to me, like, what is all this seaweed stuff? And I think that's an important point is like showing that you have a baseline, you have some way of proving that you have an effect and impact. So a lot of the seaweed tech, whether it's sinking seaweed to sequester the carbon at the bottom of the ocean or turning seaweed into fodder. Um, I have to say this because Casey brought it up when we were in grad school that there, there had been this study about seaweed as feed for cattle and reducing their methane through feeding them seaweed. <laughs> Um, I was, I was always amused. I might be immature, but you know, the cow farts, they're a big deal and we can reduce them with seaweed. If that's for real, that's a pretty nice solution. Thank you. Ocean. Yeah. I think they're doing some work out of scripts on that currently. Um, Dr. Jennifer Smith's lab, I think. Um, but yeah, it's, it's incredible. The, the, and the cool part is, is that you're, using, you know, something that's naturally occurring in the ocean to essentially help regenerate it, which is why I'm kind of in love with this whole natural capital thing to begin with. Why, why don't you explain that term a little bit, the natural capital side of things? Because while I think a lot of our listeners are probably familiar, and, and there's a lot of, I think, policy on our network, just so you know, Casey, so plenty of policy literate people, but maybe the natural capital is something that could be explained a little bit more. Yeah. So natural capital, natural climate solutions is essentially using nature to help either um, mitigate the impacts of climate change. So that's, you know, drawing down greenhouse gases or um, help with adaptation. And in a lot of cases, um, it can be both. So the classic, um, really amazing example of this are mangroves. So mangroves are um, trees that grow in uh, tropical, semi uh, subtropical zones that grow in coastal areas, and they actually grow in salt water. Um, and they, over time, accrete a lot of their leaves fall down and pull the carbon out of the atmosphere. And that essentially creates a thick layer of carbon um, that is underwater and essentially sequestered, pulled out of the atmosphere. Um, this, uh, the mangroves also provide a lot of kind of buffer and protect coastlines. So um, they will, a community that's surrounded by mangroves will, will fare much better um, in a hurricane. Um, so they are kind of that twofold amazing solution, which is they, you know, pull carbon out of the atmosphere, and they also help to protect from the inevitable increase in um, storm activities in certain parts of the world. Um, so this idea that, you know, nature has uh, value in terms of when they kind of that whole natural capital, um, there's many ways to define this. Um, people call it ecosystem services, it's service, you know, your clean water, your clean air, um, but it is that idea that making investments in these natural resources 
um, has real impact in terms of financial bottom lines um, and just human quality of life. For sure. I think it's uh, something that we've sort of taken advantage of and people have spoken about this, that we've been getting our ecosystem service services for free for a long time. So <laughs> exactly. Time to, I'd rather not pay the piper in the way that we seem to be headed right now. So um yeah, no, I'd like to pay in a different way. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, you you made a good point. I think it might have been offline, but you're leading up to that here, that the conversations about these things and the, the policies around them um, have to be as innovative as the tech. Um, so it does... How, I guess, is HyFi Group sort of working with companies or with policymakers, or how would you like to be working to help that happen? Yeah, I think um, it is acting in a role of convener. Um, so there's a lot of, it's really neat to see some of these partnerships come together, talking, you know, people who you think have nothing to do with each other in terms of like natural capital solutions and national security or um, people, there's a lot of investment now on in looking at things like conserving mangroves as a kind of financial mechanism. So helping where HyFi can help is helping to kind of translate between different silos. So it's talking to your people in finance about how you're, you know, investing in this bridge infrastructure, say in the Philippines. And that's an area that's prone to strong typhoons. Well, if you also are investing in mangrove conservation in that same area, it's providing, you know, additional protection for that hard infrastructure that you've put in. So um, a classic example of that is all the investment that's gone in after Superstorm Sandy, Superstorm Sandy, because they realized that, you know, essentially the areas that had more wetlands actually were more protected. So they're in an in a world where we're planning for climate change, investing in greater um, kind of wetland um, and mangrove uh, buffers around cities will actually help us to weather some of these shocks um, in coastal communities. I know that's something they're starting to look at in Florida a little bit, which makes me really happy as well, because they need it so badly. Um, and in past episodes, we've actually had um, an infrastructure company um, on to discuss a little bit of that. So you're fitting in just right with Wavemakers, I must say. And you also help me kind of shape what other other companies I'd like to bring to the table and introduce because there's so many fun things happening, but again, they have such relevance to, to our everyday life. So, I mean, how many states were affected by Superstorms? <laughs> You've got me doing it. Superstorm Sandy. Yeah, no. Um, it was hugely impactful. It was the or- order of millions of people. Um and just taking it back to the local, like my local community, you know, how people, again, this isn't a coastal area, but our maintaining our wetlands will have a big impact on climate sequestration or carbon sequestration, but also 
how my community handles this kind of greater influx of water that's coming in. So it's both a climate adaptation and a mitigation piece, you know, and where we do plantings, where we have hard versus permeable surfaces. Um, so it's, it is very much, we are living in the environment, the environment is changing. How do we create innovation, but also look at what already is working? And we don't necessarily have to create a new solution for everything. Sometimes the, the, the solution that's been here all along actually works really well. I think that's often the, the case with a lot of these startups, especially like uh, successful new companies tend to be standing on the shoulders of genius and not reinventing the wheel. Sorry to be trite, but they, uh, they're enhancing what's there or stepping back to what used to work or taking an idea that's already been done. So I like that approach and I see a lot of the startups that are coming on the show will probably probably have that similar story. Um, I also wanted to, before we run out of time, just talk a little bit about the funding for these, these companies and uh, along with the policy and maybe government funding, if you have ideas, you, you mentioned about investors, for instance, with this one. How, how can we help the investors kind of see the, the importance of these startups and this tech and, and feel comfortable that they're looking at the right thing and helping with the right thing? Do you know what I'm asking? Like, um, I want everybody, it needs to be a win-win. So I can understand if, if investors are hesitant, how can we help them? Yeah, no, and I think it depends on the risk tolerance of the the particular investor. So what I would love to see is, and I think this is starting to come, uh, become more available, is more kind of of the WeFunder model of people a bit being able to kind of invest more directly in some of these companies. So a lot of these larger climate funds, at least they they are investing in some of these startups, but at least they're they're kind of distributing the risk because not everything is gonna pay off financially. Um, and that may make more sense for a larger institutional investor who's say got less of a risk tolerance. Okay, if I'm distributing my, my risk amongst all these different startups, um, and then there may be people who are just, you know, that angel investor willing to kind of take a flyer on it, be like, you know, this may totally fail, but I believe in it and I'm in a position to do this. Um, and this is where the government is really critical because it can provide seed funding for ideas that seem so out there, but have real potential to gain traction once they kind of get through those initial phases of figuring it out. Um, and then I think, you know, the other thing that's important is, is in some ways, sometimes, you know, yes, money is really important, but making sure that this investment comes with mentorship and kind of how do you go from, you know, how do you go from actually to actually building a functional company? Because this brilliant scientist that may have the most amazing idea may need, you know, other staff members or other partners who are able to help them kind of build the infrastructure of the company around it, because that can be just as important for success. 
For sure. Build a team of uh, dynamic individuals, but not one person can do it all. Um, that reminds me of you and I actually in grad school because we both brought our different strengths to the table. So when we combined, usually our projects were a success. <laughs> and uh, um, further, I'm just thinking about the other companies that I'll have on this, this year. Um, and along with investing, I mean, that's a really great call to action. Firstly, I have to say that recently I kind of reassessed my, my investments and I have, you know, like my 401k and where I'm invested. I actually changed a lot of those to companies that are doing things that I really believe in. I hadn't paid attention as much in the past and I've moved into funds that support whether it's climate or um, women's businesses or what have you. I've really tried to take my money and put it into what I think is a little bit more in line with my values. So a small suggestion there for me, but usually I ask my guests rather for a call to action uh, and I know you, so you'll have plenty of good ones for the listeners. Um, yeah, I think find the piece of the puzzle that you are passionate about because none of us can solve all of it. This is a everybody find your piece of the puzzle type of thing. So somebody's, you know, piece of the puzzle might be uh, working with their local community to plant trees in, you know, areas that where they can help with uh, greater resilience. You know, people who are financially in a position to switch around their investments, that's a great call to action. Um, I would say just start asking a lot of questions. I mean, what are the larger impacts of things? Um, kind of what thinking about the full life cycle of your purchases where you can. Um, and that's a very good one. Yeah. Because that's something we have control over. And also engaging on a local level because climate policy, you know, we all, we have that impact how we vote nationally, but also, you know, if you have a local community that has a climate action plan that is following it and kind of, tailoring how they are investing in infrastructure that way, that's going to make a big difference, you know, 20 years down the line. I mean, again, could be next year um, in terms of how your local community is um, handling it. And, you know, the financial impacts and the disruptions to life of the people you know, around you. So I would say engage in policy on the local level, you know, and just and vote. Yeah. I, I like that paying attention, asking questions and, and getting involved. So um, before we go, I, I do want to say one of my big takeaways from some, what you've said is that, you know, we see failure. We talk a lot about failure on a founder's level, like plenty of people who have successful businesses have failed at several businesses before they got there. And it, it is the best teacher. And you bring up the point that that's true on a bigger level as well, like uh, on the government level and 
changing, changing systems. You have to allow that space for failure and then learn from it. So really appreciate you bringing up that point. And, uh, and the community level, I think that's a really big piece. You also are interesting to me because as someone who wanted to work with the ocean when I was a kid and then decided, oh, well, there's no, no career in that. I've certainly gone the roundabout way. I've found my way. There's other, there's so much happening right now. You have taken all these different pieces and you're building something of a career with the business side, the international relations side, and now the ocean side as well. I think that's pretty inspiring for anybody looking to get in the ocean space. So those are my big takeaways. And as for the tech that's coming, um, I hope that we've kind of made the point as to why it's important, why it's interesting, and where it can help. I really liked your mangrove example. So I do have a company potentially that will join me on Wavemakers that's looking at mangroves. So was a perfect example there. <laughs> Is there any other message you want to leave our listeners with? Or just don't forget to come from a place of wonder on things because when I think about all these new technologies and this world that we are trying to, you know, help and figure out, um, tapping into our like little kid curious side really um, puts us in a place to learn and it also just makes things more fun. For sure, for sure. How can, how can they get in touch with you? What's the website for Hyphy? It is hyphygroup.com. And is there some contact info on there as well, just to check? There is. There Wonderful. is. Well, I have really enjoyed getting to speak to you a little bit on a podcast level, Casey. I'm sure that as the year goes on, I'm going to have some questions I might come back to you on. But in the meantime, a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for Thanks for helping set the tone for 2023. I want to really talk to people. I like to get to know people. I hope, listeners, you're getting an idea of who's in this industry, industry how, how to get into the industry if you want to, and why it's important, not just interesting. Um, thank you. Thank you to the listeners, as well as the American Shoreline Podcast Network, for producing the show. As always, you can reach me at Lady Blue Tech on Instagram or via LinkedIn. Let me know if you're interested in sponsoring an episode or if you know of another amazing innovator that you believe is a wave maker. Mm-hmm.